Welcome everyone to this episode of the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast, a podcast series where we explore success stories from innovators and entrepreneurs from Queen's University in Eastern Ontario. In this episode, we have Shira Barberstock. Shira is the president and CEO of a company called Oguaho EqualSource. Her academic career and entrepreneurship expertise in Indigenous social innovation and social impact is highly sought after by Canadian and public private institutions. Shira brings over a decade of experience as a professional Indigenous researcher and has extensive knowledge in Indigenous entrepreneurship, Indigenous economic development, and Indigenous business relations. She received training by the Rotman School of Management in Design Thinking and the Playing to Win framework used by Fortune 500 companies worldwide. Of notable interest, Shira was the first Indigenous Innovator-in-Residence at the former Innovation Science and Economic Development Lab in Ottawa and is a recognized practitioner of Indigenous social innovation and Indigenous business development by the Government of Canada. As a business leader, Shira has championed several key initiatives including the Indigenous Climate Hub and the highly successful Quaybiz program under the WeCan program at Queen's University funded by FedDev Ontario for Indigenous women entrepreneurs and SMEs. Now, as we recorded this podcast, Shira was defending her PhD in the time that's elapsed from recording to publishing. We're pleased to say that we now are speaking with Dr. Shira Barberstock, having completed her PhD thesis recently at Queen's University in Geography and Planning with a research focus on Indigenous supply chain procurement. Shira is Anishinaabe and a member of the Kabawik First Nation in Kippewa, Quebec. Please enjoy this interview. Shira, let me start the discussion by just asking you about Aguaho Equal Source. Sure, thank you very much for, for having me today. Aguaho Equal Source is an Indigenous owned consultancy. We're headquartered in Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory. Uh, in case some of your listen, listeners are unsure of where that's located, it's in between Kingston and Belleville. We've been around since we actually got our start in business in 2014. Uh, my husband, Ryan Barberstock, and I started a business. Originally, it was set up as a partnership. And originally, we created a social network called the Aguajo Network. And that network was meant to bring Indigenous people together and connect them with business and economic development opportunities. Since then, the business has actually evolved a lot. Uh, we don't have the Aguajo network anymore. We actually decided to move on from that. We really evolved into a consultancy. Uh, both Rye and I are grassroots, on-the-ground people. We love working with people, especially face-to-face. -face. Education is a huge passion for us, and we've done everything from Indigenous entrepreneurship training to working with First Nation communities on uh, community-building exercises and economic development uh, working with academic institutions on their Indigenous initiatives, and even working with different departments in the federal government on, on different Indigenous initiatives and programming that they've been interested in. So it sounds like, maybe I'm simplifying it too much, but to kind of use a tech analogy, are you a bit of the Google Translate between entrepreneurs, Indigenous communities, and other stakeholders that could be reaching out and becoming integrated parts of the network to help us grow and prosper as a collective economy? Is that a fair way to describe it or not? I've, I've never thought of it that way, but I actually think that's a really good description. If you think back to starting Oguacui Equal Source, and you've talked about a pivot, maybe we could talk a little bit more about that because every startup moves in a particular direction and then decides to pivot and you're really no longer a startup having started in 2014. That's a, a long tenure for a business that's grown considerably. What was the problem that you and your co-founder Rai were trying to solve back when you started Aguaco Equal Source? That's a really good question. In the beginning, one of the things that we noticed, and just for context, I mean, back in 2014, 
I was finishing up my my degree. I was doing Indigenous Indigenous Studies at Western University and also Geography. And Rai at the time in 2014 was working for some local First Nation communities in the London region. So I just want to bring that up for context. I was learning a lot at that time in the different the different classes that I was taking, uh, especially when I was taking classes and we were talking about business. One of the things that I actually noticed is in a lot of the classes, when we talked about business, a lot of it was actually the negative stories. They're very important stories and they're stories that need to be told. Those were situations where uh, communities had negative impacts from from things like mining or gas, that, that type of thing. Uh, I could see as a student and also with what Rye was dealing with in the communities that there were also excellent opportunities for business and economic development. It's not all negative. And there's actually case studies of Indigenous communities such as the Soyuz or Number Two First Nation that have completely turned around their economies and they've become thriving First Nation communities because of business and economic development. So back in 2014, Rye and I were having a lot of conversations about about the opportunities for Indigenous peoples and communities and, and just being able to improve socioeconomic conditions through business and economic development. And we wanted to know how we could put our skill sets into play uh, to be able to improve those situations. So on my side, uh, back in my 20s, I used to teach computer software in Toronto. So I do have a techie side. And Ryan's got a background in communications and public relations. And the two of us thought, hey, social networks are popular. <laughs> you know, you think of things like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. What would happen if we created a social network for Indigenous people? Now, you brought up the whole situation with a pivot, and this is where I think it gets interesting. At that time, Ryan and I, uh, we didn't really have any experience in business. We were brand new to it. We didn't have family that were in business. We didn't have friends that were in business. Like every new startup, we were putting ourselves into the business ecosystem and looking for help. If I had known everything I knew today, <laughs> I'm not sure if I would have created a social network. I really wish I had done a business model canvas. Uh, we kind of laugh at it now, but the Aguajo network in some ways was successful. We did have members on there, Indigenous and non-Indigenous from Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand. So from that perspective, successful. But in terms of the monetary success, Ryan and I laugh at this now. I think it made $175. <laughs> I think we sold one advertisement, <laughs> but I mean, the opportunities for entrepreneurs, I'll tell you some really, really neat things that came out of that because the two of us created a social network. We got a whole bunch of media. Uh, I've been, I've had interviews in, in mainstream magazines, podcasts, newspapers. I've been on the news. Uh, Ryan and I have been invited to, to be guest speakers on panels, keynotes. I emceed an event. And so we became very well known in the space for business and economic development. And what unexpectedly happened is there was this assumption like, wow, these two Indigenous people have a social network. They must know a lot about working with Indigenous people in business. And so we started getting requests for consulting to help them with research, to, uh, to do design thinking and to help to uh, facilitate co-design processes and even to work with the government on policy on improving things like uh, Indigenous procurement in Canada. So it really evolved, but it was a great pivot story because I think had we not started the Aguajo Network, I'm not sure if all of those doors would have opened up as quickly as they had opened. Interesting pivot. So you start with an idea to connect this group of folks and then discover you and your co-founder, Rai, have the skill sets that are resonating with people and that you've got the gift of being able to communicate, network, educate, and all those things. So you pivot to saying, okay, maybe we can be this uh, gateway or consultancy to help 
the the matters you talked about related to businesses from indigenous communities growing. That's pretty exciting. And, you know, for a lot of businesses from 2014 to today, that's a very good sign of success that you've been going that long. And before we get back to the pivots a bit more, I want to let the, the, the listeners know that Shira's in some ways done things a little bit backward in the most interesting way possible. And that she and her partner started this business and grew it. And it's, you know, started as a side gig, now your main gig as you were doing your graduate degrees, right? So talk to us a little bit about the, the order of operations and uh, your journey there. Cause I think that's kind of an interesting thing to be juggling those two worlds and being very successful at both. Yeah, that is an interesting story. I ended up doing undergrad in my, in my early thirties. So I started at Western university, as I told you, and I believe that Ryan and I started this when I was in the second last year at Western university. And that was, that was an okay time. I mean, like any business, it starts off, it starts off slow. You know, you have to, you have to build up your reputation. It takes time for people to get to know you. So I, at that time, I was able to manage still being a full-time undergrad where I was still able to manage the work that he was doing with the First Nation communities. But the two of us were bootstrapping, literally on the couch, building a social network together while we were so busy. I ended up doing a master's at Queen's University after looking at reconciliation through Indigenous social innovation. And as I was doing my master's, we were starting to get more more consulting contracts. And actually, there was a lot of interest in my research at that time on reconciliation and social innovation. So when I was doing the master's from 2015 to 2017, that's when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out with the, with the recommendations. Reconciliation became a very big topic in Canada. And social innovation wasn't being spoken about very often at that time. So solving issues through Sorry, sol- yeah, solving social and environmental issues through business. And so I was interviewing Indigenous entrepreneurs at that time and asking them what they thought of reconciliation and social innovation. Social innovation ended up becoming really popular with, uh, with federal policy and programming and funding. And so it's pretty neat that probably at the time when I was writing about it and connecting reconciliation and social innovation, I, I think I might have been one of the first to write about that. And then, uh, as I said, our, our company started to grow in, in the master's program. And then by the time I got into the PhD program, so I decided to do a PhD at Queen's University after the master's in geography and planning. My PhD is looking at how Indigenous procurement can be a catalyst for community building. And as I did my PhD, our company really grew. We started to get contribution agreements. We ended up leading a a conference for Indigenous climate change for climate change leaders across Canada with the federal government as the client. We ended up building a national planet, uh, a national platform for Indigenous climate change called IndigenousClimateHub.ca. You know, go forward a couple more years and Queen's University was successful with getting the West funding for, for women entrepreneurs and they wanted to have an Indigenous stream and my company bid for that project and we ended up leading the Indigenous Entrepreneurship Program called Quaybiz, which has been very, very successful. We're now in the third year, so we've been doing an accelerator, we've been running a mentorship program and a workshop series, all while I'm still in the PhD. Uh, I think I'm now in the sixth year of my PhD. I'm hopefully defending in March. That's what it's looking like. So I'm almost on the school journey. But I think listeners will find it interesting. Uh, as you said, Jim, I, I've done it backwards. A lot of people will, will go through university and say, what should I do now? 
I'm in an interesting situation because I originally starting, started university hoping that one day I would be a professor. But what I didn't expect is that by the time I finished school, I already have a successful consulting company. I'm My partner and I are still very high in demand and I have a full-time business. And so I think I'll just be glad to finish up. I won't be looking for other jobs and uh, I'm just happy. I love what we do. It's very fulfilling and everything that we do has a social impact, which I'm really proud of. Yeah, and you've touched on a number of things that make for great entrepreneurs, right? So subject matter you're passionate about, something you could picture yourself doing for a long time. It seems like you and Rai are listening to the marketplace and being open and flexible to pivot. And then all the same while, really fulfilling one of a university or post-secondary institution's biggest mission is that is to help create individuals that bring something out into the world uh, from their studies at the university. It sounds like as you've pursued your studies, you've been able to, for lack of a better word, take a deeper dive in certain subject matters, but then bring that to your business and continue to have a positive impact. So that to me is kind of the ultimate success story coming out of a university as well, where the knowledge you create in your graduate studies starts to come out and have an impact to say, hey, hey wait a minute, you know, if we take a close look at this area, as I've done in my PhD thesis, for example, here's an opportunity for everybody to think about, right? Is that, is that a fair way to describe it? I think that's an exciting story to hear about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would absolutely say so. And I would say that one of the huge advantages, especially growing a company through doing a research-based master's and PhD, is the timing for students doing a master's and PhD. It's a lot more flexible. So I did have the time needed to help to, to help basically scale up the business. So I just wanted to mention that in case there's any students that are listening and they're in a master's or a PhD program, if any of them are considering being entrepreneurs, I would highly recommend they start now while they're still students. Right. As we were chatting on a pre-call, you made the comment that stuck with me. And that was, you know, as you're starting a business, as much as you'd want to work at it 24-7, there are certain things you need to just get started and get going. And, you know, some of those things could be quite consistent with balancing an academic program at the same time. But I guess as if things start falling into place, there'll come a time that hopefully when your studies are finished, you've got something that's a full-time gig. So it seems like you and Ryan have managed that quite well as you've moved forward through your academic studies. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to us about some of the companies or stories that you might have from the Quabiz program. So you mentioned that you were part of the weekend program to deliver uh, program services in the forms of incubators and accelerators to uh, emerging Indigenous businesses. Yeah, that's correct. So the Quaybiz program has been running, as I said, for the past three years. Uh, the funding will go until the end of March of, of this year. And since the first year, we worked with over 70 Indigenous women entrepreneurs. And we've been very, very inspired by the cohort. There's so many good stories, it's really hard to narrow it down to a couple. Uh, we've had everyone from We've had artisans, we've had people working in the mental health space, we've had people who are into traditional healing and medicines, we've had people that connect uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to, to learn more about Indigenous cultures by being on the land and learning about cultures. Uh, we've even had an unusual amount of Indigenous women authors <laughs> come through the program, which is, really, which is really interesting. One success story that I think is kind of interesting is Lightning Spark Books. Uh, we met Pamela Devonshire through the Quaybiz program. I think she was part of the first cohort in the first year. And I remember talking to her and she said, I'm thinking of, of writing some children's books based on Mohawk culture and history. 
am I eligible for the Quaybus program? Is that still a business? And I remember telling her, yes, absolutely. Uh, as an author, you still have to look at sales, marketing. You're going to have to you know, write to publishers or you'll have to put together a, a business plan if you're going to self-publish. And since talking to Pam in the, in the first year, she's actually published three books now. And she even partnered with Tyananega Mohawk Territory with, with TTO, uh, which is basically the Mohawk language and culture space. And profits from the sales of these books actually went towards the Language Center. And so that, that's one really big success story that's come out of the Quaybiz program. And it's, it's not the only one. We've, we've had people uh, grow their businesses. I've seen Indigenous women start where they felt nervous and they weren't sure if they had the business skills to uh, turning into what I love to call boss babe. <laughs> so, you know, one moment I feel like they wake up and there's just this amazing confidence and they're making really good business decisions and they've just, they're really, they're really owning it, right? So it's really exciting to see people when they're so so nervous and shy about starting a new business. And then all of a sudden there's this huge shift and then they've, they've switched, you know, into this, this boss. And I, I just love it. I just can't imagine how gratifying it is to see people given the tools to say, you've got all the skills and the brain power to do it. Let us help you just give you a framework, right? So earlier you talked about the startup canvas and how you wish maybe if you'd looked at the startup canvas, you could have pivoted uh, at it maybe a different time, perhaps. And is it, are those the type of tools that help those entrepreneurs gain the confidence that they can do it? So here's, here's the process that people need to think about. And here's the, for lack of a better word, the guardrails or the pathway you need to follow so that you can de-risk your business in a stepwise fashion and take the steps that give you confidence and grow your confidence at each step. That's a really good question. I think every brand new entrepreneur should be able to learn all of the essential skills for starting a business. I think all of us have things that we're really good at. We all have strengths. I'm sure that the first strength is whatever it is we're starting a business and there's a reason why we're starting that business. But people might struggle with things like marketing, social media, branding, business finance. And I think it's important that all entrepreneurs have that available to them. I remember when I first started a business in 2014 and I was starting to go to the Small Business Center, I felt like I could have really used a navigator at that time, someone to guide me to say, hey, you know, you should really start with the business model canvas. Now I think you should do the marketing plan. Let's look at the let's look at the business plan. Have you thought about what your brand's going to be? Have you thought about your revenue streams? And, and I didn't have that at that time. I really felt like at that time when we were living in London, I, I felt like I would go talk to someone and they were just answering my questions, but no one was navigating the entrepreneurship journey. That's where I think uh, programs like the Quaybiz program is, is really important because we do that kind of navigation. They go through the accelerator. We start with the business model canvas. We start with an elevator pitch to get them comfortable talking about themselves and their business. Uh, we get them to do a marketing plan. We get them to do a business plan. But we also do workshops on things like how do you maximize your online presence through social media? What's your personal and your business brand? A lot of businesses don't realize that as a as a founder, as a person, you are also a brand. And that's really important for them to look at that. It can be it can be a superpower and a responsibility, but it can also be overlooked. And I think that it's really important to have those important conversations. I also think mentorship is incredibly important. One of the major roles that Ryan and I play is actually just building confidence, telling brand new entrepreneurs who who not Unlike us in 2014, they might not know any other entrepreneurs in their life and their family or their friends. Sometimes new entrepreneurs just need someone to say, don't worry, you've got this. You don't know everything today, 
but let's work with you to build those skills and, and you can do this and we'll work with you. So I think that mentorship is incredibly important and, and just giving them the opportunity to, lose, to learn those business skills. I really believe anyone can learn those skills. Uh, every entrepreneur should take the time and invest that time in making sure that they do know those skills. I think there's some data that was published by Statistics Canada that said if companies go through an incubator like the Quaybiz program or other programs, the success rate is significantly higher just because you've got the structure of the different steps and the mentorship and yeah, I guess a place just to bounce ideas off of. You know, I plan thinking of doing this next or I'm thinking of doing that next and uh, having groups to to chat about it. It's exciting to learn that there's going to be 70 entrepreneurs that hopefully will have their businesses grow. But if not in that business, maybe it would be the subsequent business or you know some other role they take in the community where these skills translate to many different uh, roles and jobs and opportunities. So I think it's an exciting thing to have in Eastern Ontario. Let me turn to another question we talked about. You talked about procurement as an avenue for support for startups. And I know as part of the weekend program, Queen's University delivered a a workshop on how to get registered with the university if there were procurement opportunities for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. Give us an overview of the landscape of how much that could actually help grow our our region from, from businesses that are trying to get going or their small to medium-sized businesses. Absolutely. I'll talk about Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous companies. I really believe there's a huge a huge opportunity right now on the indigenous side. Uh, and I've been telling what the entrepreneurs I work with as well is I really believe that there's never been a better time <laughs> in the whole history of Turtle Island to be an indigenous entrepreneur than right now. Uh, back from 2018, my company, Aguaho Equal Source, was involved in facilitating some of the sessions with the federal government and, and some of the national indigenous organizations like NACA and CCAB. Uh, looking at how to modernize Indigenous procurement. Uh, and fast forward years later, the government of Canada at the federal level is now mandated to do 5% Indigenous procurement across all federal departments. And so far, they've only done 1% or less. They're, they're hoping to really scale that up over the period of about five years. But if you really think about that, the federal government is only doing about 1% or less Indigenous procurement. They're now mandated to do 5%. And so if there are Indigenous businesses out there that with some training could become procurement ready, you could scale up, this is absolutely the time. And that's just the federal government. Uh, with the importance of reconciliation right now, it's not just the federal government, uh, private sector, industry, all looking to increase Indigenous engagement and procurement. Academic institutions like Queen's and many other universities across the country are looking to do more procurement. And for non-Indigenous businesses, this is also a really exciting time to also be looking at opportunities for social procurement. And that's one I haven't heard a lot about yet, but I think it's up and coming. And social procurement will look at equity-deserving groups, and there'll be more opportunities for those businesses to tap into procurement. So that would be woman-owned, LGBTQ+, uh, that would be people of color, that would be uh, newcomers, people with disabilities, veterans. Uh, there could be some amazing opportunities. So I really think if there's entrepreneurs, that especially that fit into any of those categories, really familiarize, familiarize yourself with what procurement is. And I think procurement can be intimidating to some people. I think some people think like, oh, that's only multi-million dollar companies. It's not true. You can actually do sole source contracts, for example, with the federal government for under $40,000. And so you could, you could even be a solopreneur, just a sole, even a sole proprietorship. 
uh, and you've got some really great products and some really great services, you know, really develop those relationships and go after sole source contracts. One person can do a $40,000 contract, no problem. So I think it is a really huge opportunity for so many businesses right now. And I hope that more business ecosystems will provide more procurement readiness training because I think now is the best time. It's an exciting opportunity for our region, country, etc. What is the is, is there any resources on your website that people can learn more about this? What what if there's an entrepreneur out there that's thinking about procurement, so I guess indigenous or otherwise, what's the best way to learn more about Aguaho Equisource and procurement? Yeah, well, people can can reach out to us if we have Indigenous entrepreneurs that are interested, and we can certainly help them with that. Uh, our website, okwaho.com, is the best way to contact us. But also just doing a Google search if there's people listening from other regions, just Google search, you know, procurement training. I know that uh, the WeCan program uh, has been doing some different workshops on procurement. We've done workshops on procurement. I know that the federal government uh, will also do different workshops on how to get involved with procurement in the government. So there's actually, you know, quite a few webinars. It's just sort of putting the feelers out there and being proactive and looking for the information and and it's there. Great advice. And we'll make sure we put some of the links. Uh, I know we record some of our webinars. So the ones that are recorded, we'll leave a link in the show notes. So Shira, as you continue with your business and it sounds like it's been very successful, I'm impressed with all the work that's been done at, uh, at mobilizing and sharing knowledge and bringing communities together. As you look through the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years for the business, in addition to the impact you've already had, what are, what are your goals for the business in terms of having an impact on? Yeah, well, one of the goals, so so Ryan and I have really, really enjoyed leading the Quaybiz program. But as I mentioned, the, the FedDev-sponsored um, Fed program at Queen's University, the funding, it, it's coming to an end at the end of March. Uh, and so unfortunately, the Quaybiz program will not be extended, uh, just like a lot of the weekend programs. That presents a challenge, but also an opportunity. Uh, Ryan and I have really loved working with the Indigenous women entrepreneurs, and we would actually love to expand the programming so that we can continue to support actually not just Indigenous women entrepreneurs, but Indigenous entrepreneurs, Indigenous men, Indigenous LGBTQ plus people. Uh, it's so important And so I can't say too much right now, but I can tell you that we have been speaking with a few potential partners that have shown interest in supporting our efforts in expanding Indigenous entrepreneurship in this region. And (laughs) we're crossing our fingers and hoping that we can have some some good news sort of starting in April. So we'll see what happens, but we would love to continue it. We're definitely filling a need. I know with the Quaybiz program over the last three years, Anytime, for example, we've advertised the accelerator, it's filled up in one week. Uh, We still have people actively joining as mentees. We have people actively joining the workshops. And we still have people, even from the first year cohort, that still reach out to us. And now they're in a different stage in the business and they're looking to scale or maybe they need contacts. And and we're their trusted advisors. And, And so even people from the first year. So I would really, really like it if we could continue supporting Indigenous entrepreneurs long time, long for a longer time, <laughs> I should say, long term. And on top of that, Ryan, and I really enjoy the work that we do when we work directly with, with First Nation communities. We would like to continue that and, and just continue the work that we're doing. But definitely the biggest thing on the horizon for Aguaho Equal Source is, is getting those partnerships 
so that we can continue to support Indigenous entrepreneurs. That's an exciting vision. And you know, f- fingers crossed that you'll have good news to share with the world uh, later in, in, the, in the next couple of months. So we'll make sure we stay tuned for, for those updates. Thanks very much, Shire. I think uh, coming to the end of our time here, I think sharing the Aguajo Equal Source story and your journey and balancing uh, academia and all the good things that you and Rye are doing, I, th- I think it's an important s- story for our community here. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and to tell our listeners a little bit more about it. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me.